0: Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 10. God's Word says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the, purpose, the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Tim Keller refers to a thought experiment from the book After Virtue. Imagine you're standing at a bus stop and a young man comes up to you and says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus what is going on what is the reason why this young man came up and said this well the only way to know why he said this is to understand the story behind it perhaps the young man is mentally ill well that would explain it or perhaps yesterday you went into the library and asked someone what's the name someone asked them i should say for the name of the wild duck in latin and confusing you they came up today and told you this or perhaps The young man's a foreign spy. And this is the chosen phrase to let them know that they are the contact. Well, depending on how you understand the story will shape your response to it. If you call the police when it's simply a mistaken identity, it's going to be very embarrassing. If you pick a fight with a trained assassin, at least if I do, the results will be deadly. In any case, if you don't understand the story, you're going to miss... Your response, and this is true not just in a wild duck story, but also in life. If you misunderstand the story of life, then your response to life will be all wrong. I use the phrase story not because like some stories, they're unreal, but rather because stories are the common way that people seek to understand the world. Even this morning, our song before Sunday school, I heard an old, old story. It's a true story of a Savior who came from glory. You know, the good story needs at least three things. First, there has to be some explanation of what things should look like. Second, there has to be some issue, something that went wrong. And then there has to be some resolution. How is this going to be fixed? And if anyone knows the power of stories, it's politicians. Every time we have a new election cycle, you hear about Joe the plumber or Mary the tailor, or whatever it may be. You hear about this person and their life was going great until they came in power, and then darkness, doom, gloom. If you can only vote them back out of power, put us in their place, life will be perfect again. The way things were, how they've gotten wrong, the solution to them. We use stories to understand life. But the, story we, the question we need to ask is, is the story true? Will the given solution to the problem of the story actually fix it? Paul writes that Jesus' redemptive work is the solution to all the world's problems. Now that's a bold claim, but Paul believes it. He is showing that the price that Jesus paid not only conquered sin individually, it conquered the curse of sin is going to restore all things. God has had a redemptive plan and Paul shows us three aspects of it. First, in verse seven, we see the securing of God's redemptive plan. Then in seven and eight, we see the gracious gifts that we receive because of God's redemptive plan. And then in nine and 10, we see the universal scope of God's redemptive plan. But first, The securing of God's redemptive plan. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. As you read the Bible, redemption is one of the four main words that are used by the authors of the Bible to explain what did Jesus do? What did Jesus accomplish? You probably know the term justification. A legal term declaring that because of what Jesus did, we're made right before God. You probably know the term propitiation, a religious term in which God's wrath is removed. You've probably heard reconciliation, a relational term that there was enmity and now there's peace. And so all these words, and now here redemption, they're all showing different aspects of what Jesus did by coming to live, die, and rise again. Now we don't use the word redemption frequently, but the root word has the idea of a payment a ransom, that, so that someone is released from some captivity. It might be physical captivity. They might be in slavery. It might be financial captivity. They're stuck to their debt, and someone pays the ransom so they can be free of their debt, or something else. The idea was frequently used in the Old Testament, such as with regards to the restoring of land. As you know, the tribes of Israel were each allotted a portion. And then within the tribe, they allotted that to clans and then to families. And you can read the book of Ruth that talks about how the land of Elimelech was lost as they went to Moab. And then when they came back, they looked for a kinsman redeemer who bought back the land. He ransomed it. He bought it back. Well, the New Testament tells of the moral debt we have before God due to our sin. Thus, right here. in Him, we have redemption through his blood. What is that? The forgiveness of sins. We have a moral debt before God. Titus 2.14 Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. He came to redeem us from our lawlessness, our sin. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now this is a challenging concept today. Because many people no longer think of themselves as sinners guilty before God. Almost everyone will admit, well, I'm not perfect. I mean, we all make mistakes. But I'm so bad that I have no hope before God. That I'm a rebel who doesn't deserve God's favor. That's, we're even told, look, if you believe such things, if we are told that we're sinful and deserving of God's judgment, that's going to harm you. And that's going to lead you to be depressed, To be mentally unstable. Yet the goal of discussing sin is not so that we then go around with a whip, metaphorically beating ourselves. Oh, we're so horrible. Oh, we're worthless. The point of sin and talking about it is twofold. One, to be honest, we have something in us that wants to go against the very opposite of what we want to do. I've mentioned this before, but a couple years ago, we got a bag of sugar. And on the top it said, don't read the bottom of this bag. Now why do they put that on the top? Because every single person wants to go against what they're told not to do. They know those manufacturers of that bag, whether they're Christians or not, they know that there is something in every single person that when you're told do this, a party goes, "Uh, uh-uh. I'm going to the bottom of that bag. I'm going to see what's there." We know this implicitly. So, it's just to be honest, we talk about sin to realize there's something in us that's wrong. But it's also second to then focus on grace, that we can be forgiven of that sin. The goal of us talking about sin is not so we can continually look at ourselves, but so we look at ourselves and then look up to Christ. That's the solution. So that's where our gaze goes. Thus, our debt we're being showed here, the ransom that has to be paid is sin. And Ephesians 1, 7 also shows the ransom price that had to be paid. In Him we have redemption. How? Through his blood. Jesus had to give his life. That was the payment that had to be given so we could be redeemed. You know, No amount of money, no treasure, no promises we could make for God. Oh, if I, I'll never do this again. God, I'll leave my life. You No know, promises could bring our redemption. Jesus, the Son of God, had to give his life. He had to shed his blood so that we might be right before God. It was through his blood. Jesus explained it to his disciples. Mark ten forty-five. for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew I came to pay a price. I came to be a redeemer. I came to pay this debt. His disciple, Peter grasped this because he wrote later in his letter, first Peter one, 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, Peter is connecting not only what Jesus did, but how that ties into the Old Testament, a blemishless, a spotless lamb. She's referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system that showed that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus' death fulfilled what all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. You know sometimes people will say today, well the Old Testament sacrifices are they done away with? Well that's not true. They're not done away with. They're fulfilled. Jesus came and accomplished in his death what the whole sacrificial system was about. That's why Hebrews 10:14 says, "For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And yet we need to ask, because I know many people in our culture ask, isn't this a little archaic? Isn't this kind of barbaric? We're saying a person literally needed to die so that we could be forgiven? I mean, isn't this like the Aztecs? You watch a movie and you see them put someone on a altar and they kill him and we go, that's disgusting. So how can we then gather in here and go, This is wonderful, and sing songs about how his priceless blood has ransomed me. Well no, this is not like the Aztecs in significant ways. First, in those sacrifices someone is forced against their will to be the sacrifice. And yet notice Jesus' words in John ten, fourteen through eighteen, I am the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. And so this is not, even as some Christians will say, divine child abuse. Nothing like that at all. This is Jesus of His own love, giving Himself for the sheep this is god giving himself secondly this is radically different than human sacrifices because while jesus was fully human he was he is and he always will be god this is not humans trying to appease god this is god appeasing himself now we need to be clear we're talking about a ransom price well who was paid it wasn't satan The Bible never says that the ransom goes to Satan. We owe nothing to Satan. We will not have to stand before Satan. We stand before God the Father on the day of judgment. And Jesus paid that price so that we could be forgiven. Third, this is completely unlike the Aztecs for the first two reasons, and then tied into this, is this is not humanity coercing or manipulating the gods. You know, in all of those pagan sacrificial systems... If you get the right sacrifice, you can appease the God. Here, though, it is God giving himself, not us bartering with God, not seeking to manipulate him. Now, these truths could have many implications. We could stop and just focus on them, but I'll just briefly mention, two. Paul tells us 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, we have been bought with a price. We've been redeemed. We've been ransomed. So therefore, we need to glorify God with our body. You know, not just go live a spiritual life, go to church on Sunday, maybe read your Bible once in a while on the week, pray once in a while. No, your whole life was bought. So your whole life should be lived for God as well. This should cause us to care for one another. Paul, writing to the elders, talking to the elders, actually, in Ephesians, Ephesus, in Acts 20, tells them, Pay careful attention unto all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, which he obtained with his own blood. Everyone in here who trusts in Christ has been bought by the blood of Christ, and so we should care for them. They are precious. And as a church, we should have great love for each other. So we've seen what the redemption is. A ransom payment so that one is released from captivity. But we also need to see what were we redeemed from? Well, what were we given? What was the result of our redemption? And we see that in the next two verses. The gracious gifts of God's redemptive plan. The first gift we're given is told in the first verse we're looking at. Verse 7, forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, we can tell ourselves, as we mentioned earlier over and over, that You know, yeah, we make mistakes, but they're no big deal. We can go around trying to promote everyone's self-esteem, saying, you're enough, you're good, don't worry about that. You are who you are, and that should be enough. But the reality, each person has nagging concerns, nagging guilt over things they have done or things they haven't done. Maybe it's religious deeds they haven't done. Maybe it's completely non-religious. Maybe they're upset and they feel guilty over missing a time with family maybe they feel guilty over how they blow up in their relationships how they lose their cool maybe they have guilt over something else but we all know the feelings of shame and guilt and it's interesting you know, we've been told for decades now you shouldn't feel guilty you are who you are and yet still person after person has these feelings of shame and guilt well why Well, it's because, as we're told in Romans 2.15, the work of God's law is written on our hearts, while our consciences also bear witness, and our conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse us. God has written His law on our hearts so that we have a conscience, so that when we do something wrong, until we've seared our conscience, we don't go, eh, we're shamed. We avoid being around people. We try to not answer questions, because we know that we are guilty. So we can boldly claim, no one will judge me. I am who I am. And yet we all implicitly know because of God's law in our hearts that we will have to give an account. God has given you a conscience to help you recognize there are moral standards given by God that you must follow. And this passage makes clear to us that God doesn't just overlook our sins. God doesn't just arbitrarily say well i'm going to remove those sins from them as we just saw it had to be paid by his blood through his blood god is perfect just and holy and thus all sins must be punished and jesus was clear this is what he came to do he came to forgive sins and that's why at the last supper after he took the cup and given thanks he gave it to them and said Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He recognized, he came to forgive sins. And Christ's payment, his blood, paid for all of your sins. Sadly, many Christians think that some sins, even after being saved, some sins can condemn you to hell. Well, the reality is, all sins, the smallest of sins or the greatest of sins condemn us to hell. But to those who trust Jesus, all their sins have been forgiven through Jesus. That's why Paul can boldly say in Romans 8, one, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death paid for the sins you committed in your past. It paid for the sins you're committing now and for any sin you'll commit in the future. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not, well, there's no condemnation if you continue to lead a perfect life after you're saved. Now, there's no condemnation. Now, this doesn't mean we should become uncaring about our sins. You know, that that would be like someone saying, well, hey, I'm dating this person, now we're married, so hey, you know, I don't really care about you because I have a document that says we're married, so... Why does it matter if I show acts of love to you? Well, you go, oh, did you even love him in the first place? Were you just trying to get the document? Well, no, yes, we are secure legally with God, but if we truly love him, then we'll want to fight sin. We won't want to do what will disrupt our relationship with him. And that's the issue. Our sins don't destroy the legal relationship we have with God. We're secure, but it does disrupt the fellowship we have with God. Thus, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. And how often do we forgive our debtors? Every single day. How often do we need God's forgiveness? Every day. Again, not to secure God's forgiveness, but because we want to restore every time we break our fellowship with Him. We're told in 1 John one nine, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all Unrighteousness. So the New Testament has warnings thinking you're a Christian when you're living in unrepentant sin. And if you're living in unrepentant sin and you know you're sinning and you don't care, then you should seriously question do I truly know the Lord? Yes, there is the Romans 7 battle where we do the very sins that we hate. But you can take confidence that if you're turning from those sins, Trusting in Christ that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 7 and 8 though, God's plan of redemption through the blood of Jesus was according to the riches of his grace. There was a pastor for many years up in Chicago named Harry Ironside and he had a great little way of explaining this. He said, it does not come out of his, the riches of his grace, but according to the riches of his grace. You imagine you have a need and you go to a millionaire and you tell him your story and he listens and he says I have something I can give you and he pulls out his wallet and he hands you a ten dollar bill well he gave you out of his money but that wasn't according to his riches according to his riches would be oh he'd say okay here and he pulls out his checkbook and he signs ten checks and goes Go buy whatever you need. Then he is giving according to his riches. He's giving all from him. He's not giving you just out of it. And that is God's grace. God's grace is just not a part. God's grace comes according to his riches. He lavishes it on us. But not only do we have forgiveness, not only are we gifted with forgiveness, but also we see in verses 8 and 9, that God in all wisdom and insight made known to us the mystery of His will. If you want to know God, don't look inside. If you want to become united with God, you don't need to go into nature and become one with it. To grasp who God is, you don't need to go on a long spiritual quest, end up at the feet of some spiritual monk who gives you these esoteric questions and that you go "Eh, okay i think i understand now to know god is to know the word both the word written in 66 inspired books and the word made flesh that is how we know god you know the incredible blessing of forgiveness is so great that some people hear this and go "Eh, i mean yeah that's kind of neat and yet consider the amazing truth of this gift from God. We can't know anyone unless they reveal themselves to us. If you never met me before, you could figure out some things pretty quickly. Okay, you're about this tall. I would guess your weight is this. You're a man. You can guess some things, but you're not going to truly know me unless I reveal myself, either through words or writing or whatever. Some way I have to show you What is going on? What it is of who I am? And this happens all the time. That someone, maybe they're crying, and you go, what's going on? Well, you could make guesses, but until they tell you, until they reveal what has led to their sorrow, we don't know. And so God did not leave us to guess. God didn't say, well, if they want to know me, they can search he said, no, I want you to know me. So I reveal myself to you. I make known to you the mysteries of, his, of my will. Now, mystery here should not be thought of like mystery novel, like, ooh, I got to read and maybe I can figure it out before I get to the end. You know, Mystery in this sense in the Bible is something being secret in the sense of hidden, but then revealed. In the Old Testament, they didn't fully understand how Jesus would come as the son of God who would live his perfect life die and rose again yes it was there but it was slightly hidden and now we can look back and see it clearly there and god wants us to know him in this way he wants us to know his character and he made known his character fully by his son coming and bringing redemption and so we've been blessed with forgiveness and we've been blessed to know him to know the mysteries of his will So do you live in light of these riches God has given us? Do you rejoice that you have been fully forgiven of past, present, and future sins? Do you delight that you don't have to go through life going, is this what the story's about? Is this what it's about? No. You've had made known to you God's will. Where do you go? wonder if the Cowboys are going to lose by 20 or 30 today. Uh, what's for lunch? Are we going to go to that restaurant? We should delight in God's truth. You have been forgiven. You know God's will, and yet that's not it. We see one more amazing thing in verses nine through ten. You know, we often think of God's work through Christ, and we focus on you can be forgiven, and that's true. But as we've looked at the last two weeks in Sunday school, we've seen. There is a much bigger plan going on, of which our forgiveness is a part. Look at verses nine and ten. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is the third point, the universal scope of God's redemptive plan. And Paul writes a similar thing in Colossians one nineteen through twenty, there using the term reconciliation. He writes. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Thus, in Christ, all things are united in Him, and all things are reconciled in Him. And yet this is implying something. Unity is only needed where there's division. Reconciliation, Reconciliation is only necessary when things are out of harmony. And if you look around, you recognize things are out of harmony. There are storms and disasters in this world. There's hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, floods. There are sicknesses, there's diseases, cancer, AIDS, heart attacks, fevers. There are spirits and demons that rebel against God and lead to people's lives being harmed. Most obvious of all the brokenness in this world is death that this world does not continue that people animals plants die well does god care about all that or is he only concerned about our souls well turn with me to keep a finger in ephesians but turn to luke chapter 4 because we're going to see that jesus mission was to care not just for our souls but for the entire universe in luke chapter 4 jesus has grown he's now a man he's just gone into the wilderness been tempted by the devil he is now returning home it's his hometown return luke chapter 4:16 says and he being jesus came to nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was given to him he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written the spirit of the lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the lord's favor and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and so this sabbath Jesus goes to the synagogue, and as is their custom, they would let someone who is honored read from the scriptures. And on this day, Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he read from chapter 61. And it told of five things, that the Spirit of God would anoint someone. Now, anoint means to make them the Messiah, the Christ. This is what the Messiah, the Christ, would do. Proclaim good news to the poor. Captives will be released. Blind will have sight oppressed will be given liberty the year of the lord's favor will come and then jesus said this scripture has been fulfilled now that radical claim by jesus would have left everyone either breathless wow the messiah is here or angry that is blasphemous how can you say that you are the messiah who's come to fix all things but jesus doesn't just say this Let's look what happens in the next few chapters of Luke. So soon after this, Jesus goes to Capernaum and look at Luke chapter 4. Because he goes into the synagogue there and a demon confronts him. And Jesus, look at what it says is Luke four thirty-five. But Jesus rebuked him, being the demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of the man, having done him no harm. You Miriam Webster defines rebuke to criticize sharply or reprimand. And that makes sense. Here's this demon, Jesus rebukes it, and the man is healed. But now, look down at the next story. Because then Jesus leaves the synagogue, and he goes into Simon Peter's house. And Simon Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. But notice what it says in verse 39. And Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Just as Jesus did to demons, He does to fevers. He rebukes it. Now that's not because fevers come from demons. That's not what it's saying. Rather, it's showing that Jesus came to bring recovery of all things. Not just for demons, not just spiritual things, so to speak, but also physical things, and notice what happened the sickness had to obey not only did she become well she became so well that she could immediately serve you Now, when you've been sick when you got a fever you may get better the fever may break but it takes a couple of days to regain your strength jesus recovery is immediate it's full it's complete we'll flip over a couple of chapters luke chapter 8 famous story jesus is with his disciples and they go by night to cross the sea of galilee and a storm arises. And they fear for their lives. And they awake Jesus. And notice what it says in Luke 8, 24. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind. And notice what happens right after he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased and there was calm. Immediately the waters went from storming The winds were blowing to sheet of glass. And why? Because Jesus rebuked it. Jesus was saying, this is not the way the world was intended to be, and I came to restore the universe. I came to be the solution to all the world's problems. He's showing in his life that he's fulfilling what Isaiah 61 is all about, that he read in that Nazareth synagogue And Jesus doesn't do this by just fixing isolated problems like a demon-possessed man here, a feverish woman there, or storm-tossed disciples. These are just merely indicators of the bigger work of what Jesus came to do. But how is Jesus going to fix all the world's problems? Well, to understand the solution, you have to understand the problems. How did the disorder get back? How is he going to make the disorder get back into order? Well, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1 made it clear. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The main problem with this world is sin. And now, please hear me. I don't mean the individual acts that we do. That's not what Christianity teaches. Those acts are merely revealing of the deeper issue inside of us. Sin is a power in this world. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate the forbidden fruit, God had warned them they would die. In the day of their rebellion, the curse of sin began so that now death and destruction has entered and ruined everything. To truly know the story of this world, you have to know that the ultimate problem is that sin cursed this world. Thus, the ultimate solution must fix the problem. It must take care of sin. And Jesus came to do that. That's why Paul writes in Romans eight twenty through 22 For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. You know, god 's perfect design did not include demons, fevers, destructive storms, or death. yet due to sin, all of nature is under the curse of sin, and Romans eight says is, is like a woman groaning, just waiting for the child to come so Nature is groaning, wanting to be released from the curse of sin. And Jesus, by His blood, His death, He paid the penalty so that that curse would be paid for. Now, now all suffering has not yet been removed. But when Jesus returns, He will finally and totally return the world to the way it should be. We read back in Ephesians chapter 1, we read there that In Him, sorry, we read in 1, chapter 1, verse 7, In Him we have redemption. He did it. But we'll read later, when we get to chapter 4, verse 30, that the Holy Spirit is sealing us for the day of redemption. Something in the future. So Jesus has already paid the price. And one day, when He comes again, that redemption will fully be complete. That's what we read earlier, Isaiah 65. When Jesus returns, the lion will lay down with the lamb. That day there will be no more sickness, sorrow, death, or suffering. So what is the story of life? Even if you're not a philosopher, you have implicit answers to what should life be like? What's what's going on that's messing everything up? And how can we fix it? Here at church, we can give religious answers. But what in your life, what do your emotions so that you really think the story of life is all about? Will life be all better once you're freed from parents? Will life be better once you have a romantic relationship? Will it be better once you can get that medical procedure? Once you get the next promotion? Once you can work out that relational conflict? Or perhaps your aspirations are bigger. Will life to get better, we need new politicians. We need a new economic paradigm. We need to educate everyone. If we would just redistribute wealth, everything would be fixed. There's many stories being told in our world. This is the problem. This is how it gets fixed. But there's only one that gets to the ultimate problem and brings the ultimate solution. Paul showed us this morning that the problem is not anything in creation, but rather it is us, the creatures. It is our sin that brought the curse of God, and the only ultimate solution must, be, must come from God. And yet in the Father's lavish mercy, in the riches of His grace, He sent His Son, Jesus, to be the ransom payment for that sin. Thus, relationships, health, wealth, government, and every other problem will be fixed, for Jesus fixed the root problem. Now, sometimes people put these in opposition with each other. Well, if you think the solution is Christ, that's just going to be an opiate for the masses so that they won't care about the real problems facing us here and now. You're just focusing on heaven. And yet, in fact, it's as we realize that Jesus is the only lasting and ultimate solution that we will alleviate real and present sufferings now, that we should care about real and present sufferings now. Now, just think of two quick examples one of the biggest problems in this world is relationships. We disagree. We have problems. We have conflict. Well, how do we fix that? We'll look at Ephesians chapter 4, 32. We have the solution there. Ephesians 4, 32 tells us, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And then it gives us the power to do that. As God in Christ forgave you. If there's no one who's forgiven me, I don't want to offer you forgiveness. But if I've been eternally forgiven by God, then I have the power to no longer say, you hit me, I'm hitting you harder. You do that to me, I'm doing it back to you worse. I now have the power to restore relationships. And restored relationships can bring the end of hostilities. Knowing the power of the gospel can bring real lasting change in relationships here today. Or one other quick one. Once we... We're concerned only about ourselves. But once we've been gripped by God's free grace, then we also want to live being gracious with all of our life. Look up four verses, Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Now many of us would stop there. Okay, you're stealing, stop stealing. Don't do that, bad. But notice Paul doesn't stop there. He continues, doing honest work with his own hands so that... Not so that he can be a perfect citizen and he's not on government funding. That's not the point. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. God gives us grace so that we then want to be gracious with others. If you come to realize the biggest problem in this world is me, my sin, and the God of the universe forgives me, that should then open you to want to care for the poor, not just spiritually, but also physically Around us, This isn't just theoretical, this was also portrayed in the life of the missionary Mike McComb. Mike uprooted himself, he moved to Guatemala, and for six years he worked in a malnutrition, malnourishment, sorry, clinic, and then also shared the gospel. But Mike noticed it was the gospel that allowed the protein to get to the people. Because when people believe the gospel, men stop getting drunk. And beating their wives. As they sought to honor God. They attended to their crops. And their children's education. Even the local mayor said. It was actually when the gospel came. That real change. Began to happen. He said the preaching of the gospel. Did more to eliminate hunger. Than fish farms or crop rotation. Ever did. We should care about both. We know the ultimate solution. For a lasting reality. So we should care about those who are presently suffering here and now. So what is the story of your life? What is it that you think is wrong with the world? And what's going to fix it? Many people will say Christ. But are our lives showing that? What is the real story of our life? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you that in your son there is redemption. The price has been paid. One day this world will be made right. And so would you keep us from not caring for those around us? May we, because we know of what you've done, go out and love those around us, showing them real hope physically now and real hope spiritually now and forever. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.